All right, well, last, um, should we do, oh, am I, how's my voice there, Nathaniel? I haven't done a sound check, excuse me, I'm, I apologize. If it's too uh, deep and uh, manly this morning, we'll get that sorted out for you. Put me back in my place here. Yeah, microphones can do wonderful things. Um, right, last week, Becky started a, oh, sorry, picked up our series um, of looking at the story of the Bible. For those of you who might not remember, uh, towards the end of last year, uh, we started a series looking at the big story of the Bible. And the Bible, while it's made up of lots of little different stories and books and genres and all sorts of things, has an overarching meta-narrative which, which gives its shape and in, within which each book and each story finds its place. Last year, we did the first half, so we looked at the Old Testament, um, and in fact, uh, Rachel Ballantyne even took us through the period between the two testaments, that pause, that silence of a couple of hundred years. Um, but what we found in that story is that we worship a God, we follow a God who acts in history, right? He's not a God who's far off, who's sort of created things and then set it in motion and every now and then gets bored and sticks his finger in and twirls it around and then steps back again, right? The, the story we get of the Bible, the story that finds its culmination in Jesus, is a story of a God who is deeply involved in the world, creating the universe, all that's in it. And then we saw how humanity rebelled against God, rejected Him, and that brought sin and chaos into our world, a brokenness but then from that point onwards, as I said, God was deeply involved in bringing the world back to himself, calling Abraham, using Moses to give Israel the law, God's instructions about what it means to be truly and fully human, what God intended for us. And not just so we could enjoy life, or not just so Israel could enjoy life, so that they could be a blessing to the whole world and restore order to God. But of course, Within that, we have the prophets who were uh, sent by God throughout the history to call them back and to be faithful to all those promises that God had made to them, and that, in fact, they had made to God. And so uh, we ended the first half of the story. And last week, Becky showed us how all that we've done so far, all of the Old Testament points to one person. All of the Old Testament is fulfilled in one person, and of course, that person is Jesus Christ. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what are known as the offices of Christ, and that is what, what positions does Christ fulfill in his life. And there are three main offices that Christ fulfills. They are three key public roles that existed in God's people and were always focused on both serving God and serving God's people, and they are prophet, priest, and king. Uh, and we're going to do them in reverse order for, I don't know what reason, but that's how we, we've decided to do it. Um, but we see in the Old Testament these three officers coming together in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1 when Solomon is anointed as king. All right, so we've got the king, Solomon. It is done by Zadok, the priest, and Nathan, the prophet. And so together they complete the representation of God to the people and the people to God. We have the prophet, Nathan who speaks to the people on behalf of God. We have the priest who intercedes and offers sacrifice to God for the people and for their sins to build relationship once more with God. And we have the king who maintains God's righteous rule on the earth for God over his people. All three of these offices come together in the work and person of Jesus Christ. 
But of course, uh, if you um, uh, know your Old Testament well, you know that Christ fulfills far more than just the prophet, priest, and king. He also supersedes the temple. He supersedes the land. He supersedes the sacrifice and the sacrificial system. So we actually could say that Jesus, or the offices of Christ, are uh, prophet, priest, king, temple, land, and sacrifice. And we're going to be briefly touching on um, some of those other ones as we go through, but we will be focusing on those main three. So this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus as king. So shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, that you've given your word uh, and that, that your word instructs us and guides us, uh, Lord, but it also points us to the fact that um, our lives are not our own, um, that they belong to you and to the story that you have for this world, and that, Lord, we can be a part of that story, um, that we can have a hope and a future and a purpose with you and in your purposes, Lord. Uh, as we seek to align our lives with you. Um, and Lord, as we, we think of Jesus, our King, our Lord, uh, the way in which we best can fulfill that purpose and that, that hope in our lives is to submit to him as King. And so God, as we're reminded of his kingship this morning, we want to we do that. So God, speak to our hearts and to our minds. Refresh us, we pray. Amen. I don't know what you think about when you hear the word king. Uh, maybe your mind goes to medieval times, knights, round tables, quests, and castles. Uh, maybe it brings up battles and jousting and crusades. Maybe it conjures images of warrior kings. Or perhaps you're a Netflix fan uh, and you think of the crown, right? Or the more figurehead monarchy, enjoying the stately opulence of the aristocratic life, far removed uh, from the public, transcending in a sense, normal life. Perhaps you think of Charles and Harry and Megan and um, the others. I've, I've <laughs> Clearly, I'm not a monarchist or, or whatever it is, but um, I'm part of the colonies, come on. Um, anyway, uh, the, the royal family. Maybe you got old school, though, and when we talk about kings, you think of, um, you know, Kings of Persia and um, Rome and um, Babylon and the vast empires that they created encompassing lands far and wide. Uh, kings who were believed to be divine themselves and the wealth of the king and the dominion of his kingdom pointed to the greatness of their God. All this is to say that when we hear the word king, it comes with a lot of baggage for us, doesn't it? Not necessarily good or bad, but it brings meaning when we heard the word king and, and whatever that might mean. If we think of Henry VIII, that might conjure different metaphors to what it means when we think of Elizabeth II, let alone to say how we're influenced by Elsa, Anna, Prince Hans, <laughs> and all the other characters of Frozen and Disney classics and fairy tales that have shaped our childhoods and shaped our lives to this point, no doubt. But my point is that 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came to this world, when Jesus came to take his throne, when Jesus came to be king, the people whom he came to had an idea of what a king was, what a king meant, and what they were looking for in that king. Seated deep in the psyche of the Jewish people in the, 2,000 years ago was the history of their kings, Solomon in all his glory, and yet self-destructing at the end, 
We have David, Hezekiah, Josiah, all models of righteousness. But on the other hand, from their history, there is Jeroboam, Ahab, Manasseh, and dozens of others who embodied the wickedness of Israel and the fallen and brokenness of the human heart, as well as foreign kings, most of whom were portrayed as symbols of evil in the world. And as we look back over the history of the kings of Israel, our kings, remember, this is our story as God's people. The downfall of many a king was, as one scholar says, uh, that the trappings surrounding those kings were the most rich and ostentatious of society. Think about this for a second. Solomon's palace took twice as long to build as the temple for God. His court consumed amazing amounts of foodstuffs each and every day. He had thousands of horses. He maintained a vast fleet of trading ships. His he had this incredible wisdom, but his wealth and his fame spread far and wide. The symbols of his royalty included robes, a scepter, an ornate throne, a crown, unparalleled wealth, a personal army of troops, and a burial in the royal tombs. If you have a study Bible, in fact, any Bible with a map in it, no doubt you'll see there's probably a map in there that shows the extent of the kingdoms that both Solomon and David built, they were successful by, uh, by everyone's standards. But then on the other hand, when Jesus was born, the Jewish people no doubt had another idea of what a king was, what a ruler meant to be. And that was Caesars, or the Caesars, the Roman Empire. This is the second image that would have followed closely behind that of David, the oppression of an evil king. And again, as one scholar notes, even though the pictures of Israelite kings were ostentatious, larger empires were even more luxurious in their wealth and opulence. And so as the people of God waited for him to rescue them and save them and deliver them from the hands of their oppressors, as they hoped for a new king to be their king, a, David, a Davidic king, a king in the type of David, their hope was for this warrior king who would both defeat the Romans, but also bring peace and prosperity and extend their rule and influence in the world, just as David had done. This hope of a king, a savior, was what the people were waiting for at the time of Jesus. But the problem is that the people were waiting for a king with the glory of the past. That's the problem. It was a king to rival Caesar. A king that could fight the world on equal footing with the world. A warrior king to lead their armies. And so they prepared revolutionary narratives. They prepared forces, the zealots, who were ready at any moment to step into battle on behalf of their king. And this is why Peter finds it so absurd and confronts Jesus when he says, I must suffer and die. But what did that reading from Deuteronomy say? That Lorraine read, Deuteronomy 17. This is written in the context, knowing that when the people enter the land, they will see the kings of the lands around them, and they will want exactly what it is. What should their king be like? When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, 
and say, we want a king over us like the nations around us. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among you, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause people to return to Egypt to acquire many horses. You shall never return to slavery in Egypt and he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on his throne of his kingdom, does it mention a scepter or a crown or royal robes? No, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law, God's law, approved by the Levitical priests. And this law shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Very different image of a king than the one the people wanted. Very different image of a king than the nations have. The main responsibility of the God's king was the maintenance of righteousness, signified by the possession of the law, with the duty to not only act as judge, but to preserve justice and to proclaim the law of God to those around him. So we come to Jesus, Jesus as king. And we hear in the scriptures that he is the fulfillment of all the hopes that Israel had for a king. The defeat of Rome, the release from captivity, and the blessing to the whole world all meet their climax in Jesus, even while subverting everything that they believed about this king. This God the God of their history, the God of our history, has come, came back to, to Israel to be king, the king of the whole world. And so as Jesus enters the story, Luke has Caesar, the pagan king, in one corner of the globe, thinking that he is orchestrating the world, that he is pulling the strings. But he's really under the control of the true king. As he pulls his strings, he really fulfills God's plan in causing Mary and Joseph to make their little journey to the, Beth to the town of Bethlehem, the place where the Messiah was to be born, David's city. In Matthew, we see Jesus being born under the threat of the powers of Herod. And yet people from the ends of the world come to worship him. The Magi, they know who he is. They know the true king. They come to worship him through the providence of God. And through the providence of God, both they and Jesus are saved from this evil tyrant. In John's gospel, oh no, sorry, let's go a little bit, uh, little bit less far. Uh, this great statement in Jesus speaks in Luke as well, talks about the nature of his kingship. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Fox was a derogatory term used for King Herod. And what was the symbol of the Roman standard? An eagle. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. But the King of Israel, the Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head. What type of king am I? This is a simple sentence, but a highly political statement showing us what kind of king Jesus was planning to be. In John's gospel, the representative of God's kingdom 
and Caesar's kingdom confront one another, Pilate and Jesus. And they argue about kingdom, truth, and power. What else would kings argue about? And Pilate is shown actually to be without true power as he's outwitted by the chief priests. And Jesus goes on to his death. But in doing so, he unveils in action the all-powerful love of God. In every instance, the resurrection seals the point. Jesus is king. He is raised Messiah, Lord of the world, Son of God in power. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me, Jesus said, and I am in charge. What does he say to his disciples? Now go, get on with my work. Jesus contrasts him against the rulers of the world. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, Jesus is a king like no other. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give a li- his life as a ransom for many. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament hopes of the king. David foreshadowed Christ in his sufferings that he experienced at the hands of Saul, his enemies, those who came for him, who were in the most part for David, his own people. Yet David remained righteous in submitting to God on many occasions instead of doing the things that were expedient and which would have killed Saul. But he preserved his life trusting in God to vindicate him. David faced Goliath and fought with faith. If we go back to the other leaders of Israel, Samuel, the leader of Israel before the kings, fought not with warrior prowess, but with a sacrifice to the Lord. Joshua, when facing the battle of Jericho, was given victory not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord, as he met the commander of the Lord's army, and the battle was given to him. So where does this leave us? If we don't see Jesus' life linked with his kingship and his bringing of the kingdom and his being king and lord over all, this creates a space in which the church will not fill. A personal and private faith of our own where Jesus is is king of just my heart, not my whole life. An eternal hope in the future Because the secularists will say, well, that's never really going to happen. So don't do anything. Don't submit to Christ as king in your life now. Keep that hope personal. Keep it private. Keep it for the future. But if Jesus really is king, we must follow his way. Pick up your cross. Come, follow me. Be a servant of all. It is through the peacemakers, the poor in spirit, the merciful, the pure in heart, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is through these that God is asserting his way and his kingdom. And so, 
to claim the world for Christ, to declare the kingship of Christ in this place, in our world, in the tough places, we must become those people, peacemakers, merciful, pure in heart. We must hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in doing so, we will submit to King Jesus. We will pick up our crosses and follow him. We will bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Because if we don't, others will take our place. Who do it not for King Jesus, but for the kings of this world. And will do it not in the way of King Jesus, but in the ways of this world. So we must submit to our king. We must follow the way of Jesus. We must pick up our cross and follow him bringing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have, you're alive. You are powerful. As we have read in Ephesians, you have been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You are above every name that is named, not only in this one, but in the age to come. You hold the universe in the palm of your hand. You are our king, and we want to serve you. But God is... We've seen in your scriptures, as you have shown us, your ways are not the ways of humanity. Your ways are the ways of gentleness and love and mercy. As we seek to submit to you, our King, would you so transform our hearts? Would you so remind us of our poverty of spirit that we would be merciful? that we would be peacemakers, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as we bring your kingdom in our lives and the places where you call us to go and send us, we pray that you would show us your kingdom coming around us and amongst us, your people. In your name we pray. Amen.